I'd like me a splash of whiskey to wash the trail dust off in my gullet and keep my singing voice in pedal. Whiskey's illegal. This is a Tri-County. Well, what are they drinking? Whiskey. These outlaws. Oh, well, don't let my white duds and pleasant demeanor fool you. I, too, have been known to violate the statutes of man, and not a few of the laws of the Almighty. You ain't no outlaw, and we don't drink with tin horns. Uh, sir, it seems that you are no better a judge of human beings than you are a specimen of one. Just on a brief inventory, I'd say that you could use yourself a shave and a brighter disposition. And lastly, if you don't mind me aspersing your friends, a better class of drinking buddy. You're shooting iron work. Appears to do, yes. Huh. It appears that the vitals of this lucky son of a gun remain unpunctured. Sloppy shooting on my part. Here now. I'll get that for you, partner. The Coupe de Grasse I'll leave to the wolves and gila monsters. Adios, amigo. The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Roush. <laughs> destroyed on sight. All right, we're back, and it's Albert Pune's favorite podcast. They must be destroyed on sight. Episode 166. I just made that up. I have no basis for that in reality other than he mentioned us this week. So there you go. <laughs> that's, that's you know, wow. What a, what a way to start here, you know. That's yeah. The, the, uh, that's the way, yeah. No, I get it. I I would like to think we are his favorite podcast. I would I would like to think it's, if if he has a, a more favorite podcast, it's something completely random that has nothing to do with film. Yeah. That would be the, you know, like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I, have, but, I, I have nothing. Sorry, I was I was looking for a joke there, but you know, it's yeah. fine. For for people who don't know, it was just a cool thing that happened to us this week. Our friend Gary Hill, who was actually friends with Albert Pune on Facebook, just happened to <laughs> Albert uh, Pune, film director who directed Radioactive Dreams and a bunch of other cyborg you know, and cyborg and a lot of other low rent uh, films. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. just to, in case like we have a listener who doesn't know who Albert Pune is. Yeah. Some enduring, uh, I, I dare say, masterpieces, and I'm not jokingly saying that either. Some fun stuff he makes. He came across us, uh, our YouTube version of our uh, podcast for Radioactive Dreams and Cherry 2000, and he's like, so this is, uh, you know, this is a movie I 
made and I didn't think I would be able to make uh, another one after this. And now it's getting, you know, critical examinations in like 2018, 2019, whenever we did that podcast. And he just sort of mentioned it. I don't know if he listened to it or not, but Gary Hill from Cinema Beef, uh, our friend Gary Hill has been on this podcast, was nice enough not only say, those are my boys. Uh, so he was like, hey, I know these guys, but he let us know that uh, Albert mentioned us. So uh, thank you, Gary. And thank you, Albert. Definitely. I'd like to think that Albert Pune is listening to this right now. And I, I, if he is, we could, we should write a script. I think that's, I think that's where we, where this should go. Yeah. I would write a Pune script. We could do a sequel to Radioactive Dreams. Yeah, sure. What can we call it? Uh, Radioactive Nightmares. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, we can't really say Fallout. That's a little too obvious. And Yeah, I know. That's true. That's true, you know. And considering Fallout basically stole most of its shit from Radioactive Dreams, it's you know it just seems a little on the nose. But so anyway, like I said, they must be destroyed on site. Episode 166. I'm your host Lee, the West Texas twit Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host Daniel. Can't you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for you and me, Harper? How you doing, sir? I'm doing quite well, and unfortunately, I'm not uh, in uh, some gorgeous section of Colorado panning for gold. That's that's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> but I did eat an owl egg just a few minutes ago. So, you, know, that. <laughs> you only took one, though, right? You didn't I only took all... one <laughs> yeah. because birds can't count that high. <laughs> as, we, as, as also was relevant to another one of these stories, so we can yeah. go from there. Uh, so if you hadn't guessed, we're going to be covering The Ballad of Buster Scruggs uh, from 2018. But before we get into that, uh, we do have one comment to get to, and it is from uh, the ever stalwart Jeff Williams with his recommendation of the week. And this is one that I think uh, works for us getting into the summer months because we're thinking of doing some sex comedies again, at least for a couple of weeks. He rec- recommends California Dreaming from 1979. It says a teen sex comedy about Midwestern hipster who tries to adapt to beach culture after relocating to Southern California. The underrated John D. Hancock from uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Bang the Drum Slowly fame directs a surprisingly intelligent and heartfelt script penned by Ned Wynn, who appeared in a number of seminal uh, beach films in the 60s. The cast is very strong for the genre and features Dennis Christopher from Breaking Away, uh, Glennis O'Connor, Tanya Roberts, and Seymour Castle. Wow. Though the film is as lightweight, goofy, and TNA-filled as one would expect, it does have some slightly more uh, more depth, emotion, and character development than run-of-the-mill uh, beach movies do. Awesome. That sounds yeah. right up our alley. <laughs> maybe, we'll, maybe we'll find a uh, TNA beach comedy without rape. <laughs> no, that's impossible. That's, that's just... We've know, had a couple, know. but... We've had know, a couple, but, yeah. but not many, no. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, he didn't say there was no rape. He just said it was a little more heartfelt, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a teenage sex comedy that has its heart on, while it gives you a heart on. That's yeah, the, you know. Yeah, yeah. There, there's rape, but, um, but there's a message. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jeff. I think that's one we will put on the list uh, when we uh, do some sex comedies uh, this summer. That'll be awesome. I do have a couple movies to mention that I watched uh, recently. I'll try to be as uh, brief as possible about it. And these are two that are going to be on my uh, best of list for this year. I think. First off, I'm going to mention Next of Kin from 1982. I actually watched this for the uh, podcast Under the Stairs movie club that uh, Duncan McLeish does every month uh, for his podcast. And this is a Australian horror film. Starts out making you think it's like a supernatural, like haunted house kind of uh, thing. It's about this 
young woman who comes back to her hometown to uh, take over running the uh, old folks retirement home that her mother ran. And she just recently died and basically bequeathed it to her. And then all of a sudden things start going bump in the night, sort of. And some of the old folks start dying under mysterious circumstances. And it seems like there might be a haunting going on or something even more sinister. And uh, it turns into something completely different that uh, I was genuinely surprised about and enjoyed quite a bit. It gets into uh, Dario Argento levels of sort of like almost a uh, giallo of sorts uh, by the end of it. And it's all out ending is really good. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was great. It's a little hidden gem from Australia that I'd never heard about before. So, yeah. Yeah. You said next of canon. I was thinking Patrick Swayze. (laughs) Very different film. It seems. Yeah. Slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. Other one I'll mention is uh, from 2018. It's called Prospect. It's a sci-fi film. It's on Netflix right now. I believe it. I believe I signed on Netflix. Don't quote me on that. But it is... Uh, We're not being recorded right now. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. But it's a sort of a... They, they say like low low fantasy where, you know, there's not that much magic in a fantasy film. This is kind of like low sci-fi, I guess, in a way where mm-hmm. it's like obviously the distant future, but it's kind of realistic. It's like not, oh, we have the the super hyperdrive where we can go everywhere in, in the galaxy and shit like that. It's no, there's, there's trips to planets and stuff like that, but uh, you got to get back to the ship and then like sort of jump back. If you're, if you're going to, you know, get back in time to earth or whatever, but it's like this idea of this sort of world of uh, prospectors and criminals and other such people on sort of like the frontiers of earth controlled space, I guess, human controlled space. Sure. And it's this father-daughter combination who are prospectors. And, you know, they, they scrape their money together. Uh, they manage to rent a, a sort of like a jumper vehicle. And and the way sort of travel works in the future is that you dock your junk, jumper vehicle to like one of these official uh, sort of travel ships. And the ship will do several orbits uh, around the destination you go to. And then when they're scheduled to leave, you better be back on the ship or you're fucked. You're stranded on the planet, right? Right. So, right. so they go to this planet to prospect. Uh, they run into some ne'er-do-wells and some mercenaries and some sort of bad guys. And it's a really sort of, it turns into almost like a gritty noir in a way. But mm-hmm. it's just this fun little uh, character-driven sci-fi that I really, really loved. It doesn't explain its universe to you. It's like it's just kind of throws you in the world. And you kind of figure things out as you're going along. And uh, I really liked it. it. It just reminded me of a lot of like speculative uh, sci-fi stuff from like the 60s and 70s. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was very, very good. And it's got an edge to it. And I really enjoyed it. It's, it's a, it sounds a bit like Outland, but, you know, probably better than Outland. It's, yeah. it's very similar to that. Like where Outland feels like it could very well be in the alien universe where it's, just, mm-hmm. you know, tr- truckers in space, you know, kind of thing. Blue collar people. Very much the same thing here. Very nice. Like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I highly recommend it. It's a great film. Awesome. Mm. Well, I'll have to check that out then for sure. Yeah. And maybe we'll cover it on the podcast. Although we kind uh, of already did. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, you might hate it. So, you yeah, know, that, whatever. That the other way. Yeah. <laughs> fucking Lee and his fucking sci-fi masterpiece. What a bunch yeah. of fucking, bullshit. Fucking Lee and his fucking like terrible taste in sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, where are the so, space wizards? That's what we need. That's space the only wizards. films I watch these days. Yeah, space <laughs> wizards. No, I, I need um, 
I need Franco Nero as Space Jesus is what I need. That's, oh yeah, no, yeah. that's the that's the way to go. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna play some podcast promos. We're gonna play some music from the amazing score to this film, and we're gonna come yes. back and talk about uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. You ungodly warlock. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable! At twelve years old, you should not be watching this. Movie. Obviously, at thirteen, you should not be. Fourteen, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even seventeen-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything yeah, that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at twelve years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How be did a rough you watch movie. this shit at twelve? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hello and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I am Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> and he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. That's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> The boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show. Is available on Hello Doomed Show. and Doomed Movie Thon. com. Hello, hello. This is the Doomed Show. Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. Godly warlock. All day I face the barren waste without the taste of water. Crude water. Old Ann and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry. Oh, 
a moving Dan Don't you listen to him Dan He's a devil not a man And he spreads the burning sands with water Water Dan can you see that big green tree Where the water's running free And he's waiting there for you and me The Battle of the Buster Scruggs from 2018. People are so easily distracted. So I'm the distractor with a little story. People can't get enough of them. Because, well, they connect the stories to themselves, I suppose. We all love hearing about ourselves. So long as the people in the stories are us. But not us. This'll tell to tell. I'm Buster. Buster Scruggs. You're shooting ironwork. Appears to do, yes. Do you have anything to say before sentence is carried out? Sentence? What's my sentence? <laughs> Things have a way of escalating out here in the West. Ozymandias, King of Kings. That man is a wonder. Oh, we'll just have to see, won't we? Ah, crazy business. <laughs> First time. <laughs> Directed by Ethan Cohen and Joe Cohen. Uh, written by Joe Cohen and Ethan Cohen. Based on uh, two of the segments, at least, are based on stories by Jack London and Stuart Edward White. And it, man, I had to truncate this cast because it's yeah, like I was wondering almost... how much of this cast you were going to read. It's it's a, it's an acidic <sighs> cast. I I did the principles for every segment, but but I, and even that's kind of long. But uh, here yeah. we go. Uh, no Italian names though, so the the uh, the hilarity value is decreased. Yeah. yeah, it'll be less painful for me and less fun for everybody else. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson is Buster Scruggs. Willie Watson is the kid. Clancy Brown is Curly Joe. James Franco is Cowboy. Stephen Root is Teller. Liam Neeson is Impresario. Harry Melling is Artist. Tom Waits is Prospector. Sam Dillon is Young Man. Zoe Kazan is Alice L- Lowenbra. 
or Long Longabra? Longabara? Longaba. 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 Yeah, there we go. Uh, Bill Heck is Billy Knapp. Granger Hines is Mr. Arthur. Tyne Daly is Lady. Brendan Gleason is Irishman. Uh, John Joe O'Neill is Englishman. Saul Rubinek is Frenchman. And Chelsea Ross as Trapper. And uh, synopsis for this from IMDb actually does a fairly good job, I think, as far as back of the box. If this thing ever gets a DVD release, which I hope it does, because I want to fucking own it. It says six tales of life and violence on the old west following a singing gunslinger, a bank robber, a traveling impresario, an elderly prospector, a wagon train and a perverse pair of bounty hunters. Eh, okay, not bad. Uh, I mean, you know, Don Draper 101. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, so this is, uh, I, I should just mention right off the bat that this is the longest Coen Brothers film that they've done. And this is the first one they did on digital. Before that, it was all celluloid for them. But uh, they decided to do the switch to digital because they, I think they had like 800 effect shots they had to do for this film. So, <laughs> yep. Decided, uh, it's time to start playing with it, I guess, is, is what they felt. We're, we're going to get into this. We're going to give our sort of general thoughts, and then we're going to like sort of dig a little bit into each of the six segments uh, of this anthology. But what's your sort of general thoughts on this? This is really, really amazing. Um, I, I believe, I mean, I put this on my best of list last year. Um, mm-hmm. It absolutely deserves its place. If anything, I liked it even more on the second watch because this is the only... I've only I watched it the first time and then just kind of rewatched it this evening to uh, to prepare for the podcast. Even better, kind of know not kind of know what's coming and kind of being able to see some of the foreshadowing and some of the structural stuff. Just a set of amazing performances. There's really no winkly. I mean, no. there are a couple of kind of weak points of the film that we can kind of get into. I mean, I think I think probably the one big glaring one is that despite being this kind of like weird revisionist Western in the 21st century, uh, there's no Native American character with speaking role and they are very much the, uh, yeah. the savages in the, in the film. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, it's slightly more nuanced than that, but not much more so. And I think that that's probably one thing that we could expect in a, in a film of this kind of this, at this point in yep. history. And I think it is, it is a big black mark on, on, you know, just kind of the, the way the film exists at the same time. That's just expected <laughs> with these things, you know, I, I do, I do have a thought on that. I mean, yes, the, uh, so the native Americans that do appear in this, they're kind of just presented as like this savage force of nature and there's no real depth to them at all. But considering, I think, that the way this is done, it's supposed to be kind of a pastiche or uh, adaptation of a uh, book of old Western tales, like, from the period. So when you look at it in that way, it makes sense that, like, there's no way any white person was going to write a book of of Western tales and present Native Americans as real people. Like, it's just not right. Right. Well, I mean, the thing is that like, uh, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, they did write, you know, there, there were, uh, you know, uh, Native American characters uh, all throughout fiction, but they were just kind of written as like racist caricatures, even when they were the heroes. And so I think there is that, that kind of angle on it. I mean, ultimately I'm putting it out there just to kind of say, yeah, it's totally an issue with the film. I hate it about the film. There's nothing else to do about it except just to say, yeah, it's just totally a thing. Mm-hmm. I get what they're going for. I wish that they had done. I wish that they had done something to kind of cover for that. But um, that being said, the film is uh, overall very, very good. 
Um, I think there's only one segment that I think I'm I'm not like overwhelmingly positive on, and I think we'll we'll get to that. I mean, we will get to that as we as we mm-hmm. kind of discuss them. I love the kind of mix of tones. I love that you know some of this is very overtly funny, and some of it is you know really fucking dark, and yeah. most of it's kind of halfway in between. It's uh, it's just really really well made um anthology films i really wish we saw more of this none of these segments really kind of outweigh their welcome uh i think you know it's kind of mm-hmm. you know they're exactly as long as they need to be and no longer and i think that it's just a mark of master filmmakers to be able to like put that together and you know and again upon rewatching them i you know it was it was much more clear kind of the, that every single piece in each of these segments has a kind of a point, you know, like every shot is mm-hmm. deliberate, you know, almost, I mean, it is, these are kind of put together like a machine. I have a real fondness for, for the kind of the short story medium when it's done well. I grew up reading a lot of short stories. That's exactly what this feels like. It just feels like a short story anthology. And, you know, there were rumors that this was going to be a TV series. They seem to be just like kind of bad reporting when it was a original yeah. thing. Um, this was always going to be like a film. I'm really glad that they didn't kind of do a TV series cause it, you know, like, Buster Scruggs is a great character for like a 10 minute bit doing like 50 minutes with this guy would, would kind of get insufferable, you know, Yeah. depending on what you did with it, obviously. But, uh, you know, anyway, so uh, overwhelmingly positive, just the kind of major flaw in the film. Um, other than that, I think it's, I mean, just a full recommend all the way along. And if you haven't seen it, absolutely check it out. It's worth, it's worth watching. Yeah, I, I think this is fucking fantastic. I think this within the sort of six segments, it kind of, covers the breadth of what the Coens have done in all their other films. Like it sort of yeah. touches on all those themes again. I think one of the coolest thing about this is that if there's one overall theme in this, and although, you know, each segment does sort of tackle different things, I kind of, it, it's, it sort of goes back to that revisionist Western thing where it highlights like the uh, contrast between sort of Hollywood myth making about the Western and the actual like grim realities of people and and how the old west probably was it, it, i mean it, 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 it creates its own myth making as well i mean there is mm-hmm. this is definitely not you know like the real west yeah name namely uh all these people have all their teeth you know for one thing you know, <laughs> always a thing um, i mean it, it definitely is kind of creating its own its own movie verse but um it, it's uh it's kind of referencing earlier films um and earlier like stories and early i mean it, it's kind of referencing this kind of mythology of the west and then just kind of riffing on it some ways that are i think are really really sophisticated which again we'll kind of get into that as we kind of get into the individual segments but um yeah, yeah but uh, it's clear this is something i mean they they wrote these stories over like 20 25 years yeah and it's clear that this is something that they've been you know, that level of effort has been put into this. And then it's weird also that they were like writing these short stories and then just filing them, like <laughs> not having a particular like place for it. Just kind of, you know, and, and, um, you know, depending on when they started, that would have been kind of in there that, that kind of period after, uh, um, you know, when, when they were kind of in the process of making uh Barton Fink and it was, you know, this kind yeah. of like writing, you know, the, which is yeah. A movie about writing. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. it's, it's a movie like, like that movie came out of like severe writer's block that they had yeah. you know, for, for a couple of years. And so the, the kind of, that kind of pressure. And so I can imagine that this was, you know, work that was kind of like work. It started out of as just kind of this, like a little project, just as something in between the, the real like paying, paying work, which I think is an interesting thing as well. I mean, you know, yeah, so uh, I, yeah, hope, I, mean, I hope we get more movies of this. I hope that they have like thirty more stories so they can just keep adapting into these films because uh, that it would be amazing to see 
more of this, but yeah, I mean, you you say like I just like seeing Buster Scruggs himself in this one segment. I would be cool with like a bunch of short films about Buster Scruggs. I mean, right, right, sure, sure. Well, no, maybe not a bunch, maybe like two or three, because I mean, there's a certain point with this character yeah. that's being made, and then it's like, okay, I get I get the point. Other than that, it's just like enjoy him. <laughs> kind of yeah, thing. I could sort of see like Roadrunner cartoons, but with Buster Scruggs, you know, as that's, it, like, you know. That's it. And I, I guess we should just like get into the segments here. Yeah, so we I should mean definitely. First, first segment, Buster Scruggs, the titular segment. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And this is basically the Bugs Bunny meets Django Unchained. Is <laughs> what <laughs> Well it's kind of the, the the singing the singing Western star, the kind of mm-hmm. you know classic nineteen fifties, you know, like TV Western guy almost uh, runs into uh, Peckinpah, you know, in, yeah. in, in a way. And, uh, you know, turns out he's, you know, the, the big twist is that he's even darker and, and more badass than anybody he runs into until the end. And then that's another, you know, singing cowboy. This uh, segment has a lot of fun with language. I mean, the whole film has a lot of fun with language, but this one in particular really has that, that kind of honed Coen Brothers uh, category where there's just this, huge amount of like you know kind of kind of playing around with the uh with the names he gives himself and the names that other people give him and you know the the sort of um you know there's there's a circumlocution around certain ideas you know like mm. uh, i wish i'd written some of it down i mean there's just so much great writing in like, this, he, call, you know, like he calls himself the same sand song songbird or whatever the fuck right it is. right and, yeah, yeah and then everyone else knows him as something different like Right. Here's here's the thing about Buster Scruggs. Uh, he he makes his own myth. Like he he's, right. he's very much about uh, self uh, aggrandization. Like he's very very well, much he's, like he's selling his own story. Is like oh I'm a I'm a singer and I'm like the famous guy who's you know known for sp- spreading song throughout the West. And then in reality, what he does is you know spread death and dismemberment throughout the West. Yeah. And he's really annoying at the same time. Every, and that's, you know, there's a tension. Yeah, there. yeah. Everyone else knows him as something different. Like he, sh- in his opening segment, he shows us uh, his wanted poster, which calls him the misanthrope. And he's like, right. I don't hate my fellow man. I just, I just understand human nature is all, you know, kind right. of thing. And I, and and, I can't, I can't blame uh, uh, <laughs> another human being for being what God made him and that sort of thing. I mean, there's, there's a really kind of twisted, you know, concept of like who this character is and, and, you know, kind of, I mean, this is very larger than life thing, but it's like deeply funny as well. I mean, I love the bit where he walks into, I mean, this thing is only, I mean, I didn't time the segments I meant to, I just didn't like, yeah, this is one of the shorter that, ones. I, this, this is, I think be... this is the shortest one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this one. Yeah. It's, if not, it's close to it. Um, No, I, I love the, the, uh, the scene where he kind of walks into the, uh, the isolated uh, tavern. And yeah. it's like filled with all the like tough guys that might as well have walked into, walked out of a, you know, once upon a time in the West, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or a peck and pot film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, it's like, no, you can't, we can't serve you here. We only serve outlaws. It's like, why? Well, I've been known to violate the laws of man <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps a couple of the laws of God as well, you know, or there's, yeah. you know, it's, oh, I, I love it. It, it, the, the, it shows you right off the bat that it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon because he walks in there. He dusts himself off and leaves like this cloud that's shaped like right. him. I mean, it's him. so it's so over the top that it's it's kind of difficult to take seriously. And then things get like super dark because he just murders everybody in the place oh. with this like super amazing uh, like trick shots and everything. Yeah. And then there's one guy who is like, oh, I I 
you know, bad shooting on my part, you know, because uh, this guy, uh, he's still alive. He didn't hit a vital organ. And uh, he just opens the door for him and says, I guess I'll let the coyotes and the Gila monsters get to you <laughs> because, uh, you know, I couldn't possibly spend another bullet to put you out of your yeah, misery. Like, you know. Because Buster Scruggs is actually a vicious fucking psychopath. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's amazing. He gets in there and it's like, I, I'd like some whiskey. It's like, uh, we don't serve whiskey. Well, what are all these other gentlemen drinking? Whiskey. <laughs> it's like, so funny. It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so fucking good. And I love that he, he has this sort of mythology about himself where he thinks he's the good guy in his story. But he instigates and escalates every encounter he gets in. Like, he, he's, he's always pushing people into fights, basically, even though right. he's... Yeah, and so it's just... He's a, he's a fucking monster, and I, I don't know if I'm necessarily too off... Uh, board here but it's kind of comparable like as as sort of uh, analogy to uh, just manifest destiny kind of thing where the old west where you know white man comes into the west and you have all these stories about the brave white man conquering the west and beating the savages and stuff and singing songs about how brave all the cowboy heroes were and everything like he's kind of the embodiment of that to a certain like it's a it's a small segment of it there, you know, there's the other thing of the sort of endless cycle of violence where there's always that next guy who's going to take you out, you know. So you, you got the, the new kid who, who shows up and is going to, you know, take out Buster Scruggs and become the new, basically, Buster Scruggs until another kid shows up and kills that guy, you know, kind right, of endless yeah. cycle shit. But um, there, there's, a, there's a very clear, like, life is cheap element to, mm-hmm. to this film. And, that, and it runs through, uh, I mean, almost every segment is kind of about life is cheap. I mean, you know, one of the things that we forget in terms of thinking about, you know, the 19th century, um, I've been um, uh, reading this book, Masterless Men by uh, Carrie Lee Merritt. Um, and it's a book about the uh, kind of pre-Civil War, post-Civil War, um, basically poor white underclass. And, you know, it's it's a complicated, it's an academic text. It's a, it's a, it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Um, but one of the things that she points out in the book and in, you know, podcast appearances and stuff and on her Twitter is that, um, you know, life was unbelievably brutal for almost everybody at this time in, in American history and particularly in the, in the deep South. And that's a different thing in the West, but, but ultimately life expectancy was not long, <laughs> you know, yeah. if, you're, if you're one of these characters and uh, you know, the, the, there really is this sense. I mean, you know, most people who lived in this environment, would not have died of a gunshot wound, but uh, you know, it was definitely a possibility and there were, you know, they had harsh laws and, and hangings and all this stuff. Just, it was just the nature of life. I mean, and things like vagrancy laws were passed just to, you know, if you were a poor white person, you know, who wasn't, you know, working for some, some, some overseer somewhere and you were caught, you know, on the road somewhere, you just basically get like pressed into prison and you become part of a, prison gang breaking yeah. rocks for 18 hours a day. I mean, um, that's way off the the point of the segment, but I think it, you know, that kind of reality does sort of like bob up over and over again in this film. And I think that it's something the Coen brothers are, are pretty aware of the, the kind of casual brutality. And I think that um, here in Ballad of Buster Scruggs, it's played for laughs, arguably, I yeah. mean, not arguably. I mean, it's definitely, it's played as a Looney Tunes cartoon. I mean, he literally, shoots off all five of the guy's fingers and then, you know, like does a trick shot to get him through the heart, which is, you know, I mean, I don't know. I've rewatched that segment like 20 times. It's just, it's such a joy to, to just pick the little pieces out of it. But um, I love how he just, he breaks the fourth wall and he's talking to the crowd. He's like, 
Uh, let's see now. I was looking in the mirror, and uh, he his left is on my right, and his heart is here, and I best not overthink uh, it. And, <laughs> and the and the gun is upside down, so uh, yeah, better not. I've only got the one bullet, so best not try a, tri- a trick shot. You know, <laughs> mm. let's keep this one simple. It's a but it, but it's also like part of that like thing of and and we kind of say this. I mean, I've said this before on this podcast talking about you know various Western heroes. Western heroes always have like impossible agility with a firearm. It's just yeah. a thing that like Western and and this just kind of plays up that parody even more so and really kind of it sets the tone for the movie despite being very different from from all the other segments um, because it is like the one that's kind of the most Looney Tunes ish. It is you know it's it's kind of outdoing uh, you know um, Blazing Saddles and doing it in like eight minutes you know it's there is that element yeah and it's i think it's really smartly placed though because it really does kind of introduce you to all the themes that they're kind of exploring in this film Mm. and but it 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 gives it to you as a Looney Tunes cartoon, so it's like, okay, I'm I'm already invested. I want to see what else is coming on, right? It's like, well, and, you, and you get a nice dose of energy right at the beginning, mm-hmm. so that you're not kind of left. You know, when you get to the end, I mean, and, and we'll get to the end. <laughs> I mean, we've got to move on from this segment eventually. But when you when you do kind of move on, and as you do get into the darker segments, and you do get into the more elemental kind of stuff, you know, it would be difficult to like begin the film on like the one that ends it, for instance. That would not be a place to to begin this yeah. film. You get a nice dose of like light and energy here at the beginning, um, even though it does have the darker undercurrents. Yeah, and you get and- a great song. You get a couple great songs, actually. Yep. Uh, I would I would argue, like the opening where he's uh, you know talking about cool water, and uh, then you get uh, you know cowboy gets his wings or whatever the fuck it's called, yep. and, which uh, um, nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Rightly so, I think. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we can move on to the next segment near Algodones. Algodones, that... yeah, Algodones, yeah, okay. New Mexico. Sure. Yeah, my thought on this is this: this is the most clear Leone homage in yeah. in, in the film because you get the. Uh, it, it's it's truncated. It's not exactly the like eight minutes or whatever the fuck in Once Upon a Time in the West, but you get this early thing with James Franco, and you have basically nothing but the sort of incidental sound of the environment playing yep. there for like mm-hmm. thirty seconds or whatever before he walks into that isolated bank. Like, who the fuck would put a bank in the middle of nowhere, kind of thing? <laughs> Apparently, Stephen Root would, and it would be fine. That's that's what we learned. First, um, first time again, I watched. I was going to say, first time I watched this, I did not know that was Stephen Root. Like, I had oh god, how did that happen? No, I get it. He 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 is kind of, I don't know. For me, I've just I I just love Stephen Root. It's like, oh yeah, obviously it's Stephen Root kind of doing. I I think he just lost a lot of weight, hasn't he? Like he's he's dropped like I don't know. Maybe he looked like he did to me. He doesn't look like he's (laughs) as big as he was in Office Space. Let's put it that. Well, yeah, I mean, but that was like twenty years ago. Yeah, you know, whatever. uh, Yeah. No, I, I love this one. Uh, again, uh, one of the more high-energy ones. I mean, we're mm-hmm. kind of, like, ramping into, like, kind of darker, more elemental stuff. But um, still still pretty pretty light, pretty pretty airy. Um, mostly just kind of <laughs> mostly kind of fun uh, vignettes in a, in a way. Yeah. You know, it really is just kind of like, oh, this is just a, a, a set of weird things that happened to this guy on the last day of his life. Um, you know, where he tries to rob a bank and then it turns out the the guy's very prepared for him. I love the line that Seafood has where he's like, you know, we only get, you know, a shipment every month or so. So 
one time a guy tried to rob me and then, you know, I had to, you know, he got gangrene and I had to like keep it with, with some kind of leaves and urine. And then, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and you just imagine like this guy, like in this cage, like where he's like literally like pissing on this guy every few hours and <laughs> keeping the, you know, and feeding him like gruel or whatever. And then, mm-hmm. you know, like that, again, that kind of like casual brutality, that casual, like just, misery of of living in this world um just just kind of you know it just comes right out in the um forefront there um, I, I love that that uh, little discussion where he's talking about him actually gives away his method of dealing with bank robbers where he's got like shotguns set up underneath the fucking yep. uh, counter and then, so he obviously it worked on that guy where he got him in the leg before he right. managed to rob mm-hmm. the bank <laughs> yep yep no i mean you, you figure it out pretty quickly oh yeah no that's what happened um Reminded me shades of snatch if you remember the uh the the boy they try to rob them they try to blag the bush. right um it, it has it has a little bit of that kind of that kind of um, feeling to me you know in terms of that <laughs> then uh you know you get a you get a gunfight you get, the guy comes out he's all wearing pants and you get the pan shot pan, pan shot. shot um get his get a little armor there and then um yeah no i mean it's just it's i, I don't want to just sit here and describe what happens in the segment it's just sort of like you just kind of move on into He's been tried when he's asleep and he's about to be hung. And then like mm-hmm. the you know, kind of magical intervention of our savage Native Americans, the first ones we see in the film, mm-hmm. not the last. And then um, runs into a rustler and then uh, joins forces until he runs away. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> he gets hung again. And mm-hmm. that, that's kind of the, the end of the segment. I think this one might be the shortest one, actually. Um, yeah, actually might be. Yeah, but um, it's certainly you know, the one with sort of the most it's kind of the most shaggy dog story. It's kind of, it kind of feels very kind of Coen brothers, just kind of riffing, just kind of like playing their ability to just kind of play, like let that kind of raising Arizona style, like, you know, yeah. like yeah. just like shit happening all the time. You know, um, this is also one where you can imagine sort of the full length version of this, where you could sort of see this as a, like a 90 minute film where, you know, it's just James Franco yeah, going from one air, bullshit situation yeah, to another, you know, becomes one of the acts instead. Yeah. 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 So, um, but it's a nice, that they just kind of like take it and then they put it into this little like i don't know 10 minutes maybe of of you know just kind of pure like just motion from one place to another i think which is which is a really kind of gorgeous thing a lot of fun you know if you're if you're looking for energy this is definitely it i could again i could definitely see i would love to see just one more point i mean james franco you can have some personal things about james franco kind of being a dickhead uh i think he's really good here and i would love to see him uh, star in a western that's He's got a great face. For, he does for have his. a good face for it. Yeah, uh, very like kind of Clint Eastwoody kind of face in a way. Like kind of, yeah. he's, he's got some lines on his eyes now. He can work, yeah. but uh, he looks good covered in dust and uh, sunburn. Yeah, that's the. <laughs> Uh, what I love about this, and I, and I guess some people could like kind of almost, if they want to be flippant about it, just sum this up as kind of just like a one joke segment. But it's like the funniest line in the film where he's at the gallows and it's literally gallows humor. He looks yep. to this guy who's crying next to him. He's like, first time. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, come on. I mean, I, I like how he, he went through this just terrible day where he kept avoiding death. And when he's finally at a spot where it's like, yeah, I'm, it's, I'm fucked. It's like, yeah. it's, it's over. He just accepts it. And he's like, well, there's a beautiful girl. At least I'm going to go out seeing something nice before I die. And then, and then, and he does. There it is. And then yeah. it's over. Yep. And now let's get really fucking dark yeah. <laughs> with meal ticket, which is darkest kind of, one, darkest one, probably. I'd, I'd say so. Yeah. Uh, the bleakest, darkest, most 
tragic and probably most true to human nature fucking segment in the film. I kind of say maybe, uh, maybe closer to how dark we get than anyone would want to maybe admit. It's yeah. I mean, stuff like this probably routinely happened in the old West. Like not so much like a, a guy taking a, <laughs> a quadriplegic or, you know, or a quad, a quad we get amnesty. no, we get no like background on this, on, on these characters. No, like we don't, we don't know. That's, that's, that's kind of by design. I mean, you can imagine him as sort of like a war veteran who just lost all his limbs in the war. Like yeah. maybe he was a, so, so the basic narrative here is that there's this guy who's a, who's an actor who's quite a good actor. The actual performer is the, uh, is the guy who played like Harry Potter's adopted old right. brother in um, the Harry Potter movies, like the, whatever, Dernsley or whatever the, the kid's name is. But, um, you know, uh, and then you see him, or yeah, something. You, you see him now and it's like, I, I mean, I was like, I know that guy from somewhere. And then I looked it up I'm like, Oh yeah, no, there we go. He's quite good in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, just kind of one of those, like, uh, kind of wish maybe they could have hired a, an actual disabled actor, but, you know, yeah. that's not how things work. Uh, no. So I think what's interesting about this is that there's no, like, dialogue between uh, him and Liam Neeson, who's uh, sort of the, the guy who's uh, carting him around and sort of, like, running the business end of things. Um, they share not a single word of dialogue between them. And, in fact, our, the actor has no lines of dialogue at all except for the um, the, the spoken, yeah. like, his, his the monologues, yeah. the performances. And um, it gives it this kind of dark elemental feel it gives us really kind of sense of dread because you know it really is just kind of all done through uh performance through um you know shot selection and through through editing and all this kind of stuff you're kind of yeah. building a narrative just through just through that you don't have the you know for for filmmakers who are like as in love with language as the coen brothers are they don't use that here i mean it's i mean you know virtually every line of dialogue is really just taken from some other piece of writing right uh there's probably some deep metaphorical meanings in terms of the actual selections that are picked. I did not go through and yeah, um, me either. analyze like, that. I, I could, I, I was rewatching this and I was like, I could imagine this one again as kind of a 90 minute film in the sense of, you know, this, this could definitely be like an exploitation film. Like you could imagine right. like the really scuzzy mid seventies, uh, like scratchy work print version of this directed by like, <laughs> Uh, Jess Franco or whatever. Like you could imagine yeah. a really terrible version of this with the with the kind of extended sequence with the prostitute, of course. You know, mm. if, if, if Franco directed it. Actually, I was thinking uh, like Peckinpah probably could have done something with Peckinpah this. Peckinpah could have, or you know, I mean, it, it just you can you can imagine sort of the full kind of the fuller version of this with kind of more of the kind of where you get the backstory and you get all that kind of stuff. Um, totally not needed here. I, I think the segment is fine. It is kind of a one sentence thing that kind of goes on just a little bit longer than I want it to bothered me less on the rewatch. Once I kind of knew where it was going and I could kind of get to the, get there. This is the one where it's like, you know, I either want this to be kind of more in depth and give me more background and detail, or I want it to be like five minutes long. And that's kind of yeah. where I, where I land on it. It feels a little bit like a, uh, an episode of amazing stories. that just overweight overstays <laughs> its welcome just a little bit. Or like kind of an old Twilight Zone, one of those kind of lesser tier Twilight Zones. It's just kind of like, yeah, I just, you know, it's just it's just slightly longer than I want it to be um, for for what it does. Um, but yeah, you know, that's a that that's kind of a quibble. But this is the only one that I that I've kind of I, th- I find myself kind of checking my watch through a little bit. Yeah, this it's it's super depressing, and it's like there's no twist to it really. It's it's just kind of like, yeah, Liam Neeson's character gets bored of the. Uh, 
of the well, he's not making the money, you know, and then yeah. like he literally replaces this this human being with a, a calculating chicken, you know, right? You can do math, yeah, but who can also, do math? I.e., you know, you've got a bell and you like have some method where they. I mean, it's yeah. clearly a gag, you know, where because yes. he hands him the bell because he buys the chicken and he gets the bell along with, him, and it's like clearly there's some you know kind of method. But, that, the, but. yeah, and the point is, is like chicken draws and the chicken is less maintenance than the the quad amputee, so it's like, well, I'm gonna get rid of this guy because I don't have to pay as much to feed the chicken as I do have to feed this guy. Right. It's, it's like kind of making a point about the ruthlessness of business, I yeah. guess, to a certain extent. And but just, just that life is cheap. And I mean, let's, yeah. let's be clear here. Like disabled people in America today run into very similar issues, mm-hmm. especially if you have, you know, the, the, that kind of, you know, like quadruple amputee or whatever, you know, where you do need constant care. And if you do not have money and you need that kind of care, you will end up waiting in your own shit. And it's absolutely horrifying and terrible and awful. And I have nothing but respect and empathy for anyone. Believe me, I am not trying to diminish this in any way. <laughs> Sorry, that, again, takes you to that dark place when you realize, like, it's yeah, super it's, dark. Not, it's not much better. It's not much better 130 years later or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. kind of that's one of the biggest depressing things about it. It's like once, second... once you become slightly less than like overwhelmingly useful to me, I am going to like throw you in a in a lake and yeah, uh, and you're right, like die. yeah, right right into a gorge into a river and you you just die. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 super fucking depressing. Although I would argue that I don't necessarily think Liam Neeson was too hard up because at one point he pulls out a fucking stack of bills. Oh where... yeah, no, no. I mean. Well, so it's not even it's not even that I'm poor. It's that I'm tired of like giving you half my food. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm tired of feeding you. It's much easier to just throw down some seed and let a chicken, you know, eat than that's than where the uh, your stupid ass. You know? Yeah, that's that's where the ruthless businessman thing comes yeah. in. For a guy, yeah, once you see that wad of bills, once you see that wad of bills, it's like no, no, this is not like a out of desperation kind of thing. This is. Mm-hmm. You're being an asshole. Yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. He's, just, he's just cutting costs. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to something a little bit more uplifting. <laughs> although <laughs> although the Coen brothers uh, definitely kind of like trick you for a moment and make you think, oh, <laughs> shit, we're even going darker. It's going to be really bad. Uh, but All Gold Canyon with yeah. uh, Tom Waits, which I think is, for me, the best performance in the film. I, I love it. Oh, yeah, I've, yeah. Fucking... Best performance, I'm absolutely on board with that. Um, Tom Waits, you know, my wife and I rewatched this this afternoon, this evening, you know, um, she's just, she she literally kind of looked up and was like, God, I love Tom Waits. And it's like, yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves Tom Waits. He's amazing. I love that he gets to sing a little bit in this. Um, so, mm-hmm. so basic, I mean, the narrative here, and, and, and what I love here is that, A, you learn how to pan for gold. Yeah. Um and uh that is actually how you pan for gold. I kinda looked it up and it's like, yeah, no, that's that's pretty much the, the methodology. Even today, I mean you got better technology. I mean, you know, but it's it's basically just a like a geochemical process of like tracking down the narrowing it down, yeah. You narrow just, it down, yeah. Yep. Tom White's character, he has the inclination of just being another human who's destroying nature and uh, you know, imposing himself upon nature and there's a little bit of that like there there is a sort of overall theme of 
man walking into unspoiled nature and like leaving his mark on it and kind of corrupting it to a certain degree. But I like that. It seems like his character is, he gets more out of the process of actually finding the gold than actually having the gold as much as he's the prospector who's obsessed with having the gold and, and you know, accomplishing that he seems to get like almost just as much joy out of, out of the process of finding it, you know, like well, he's a, Guy who and and I mean, you know the gold prospectors. Look, you know, you go out, you live in nature, you eat, you eat the, the eggs you find, you you fish in a stream, mm-hmm. you um, dig your holes, you know, and and you know as long as you got the kind of manual dexterity to do it, and you got the, the skill, and you get a little bit of luck, it's a life. It's a yeah. you know, and and uh, you know certainly, I mean, for for you know coming right after Meal Ticket and kind of seeing the the like darker elements that are in the you know really all the rest of them, it's kind of life affirming in a way. It's kind of like you know no, this is just a, a thing you can do, and you know like the gold just sort of like it becomes a way of funding the lifestyle in a way. Yeah. You know, I mean, those prospectors never really made real money off of what they, you know, most of them just kind of eat by or, you know, lost their shirts or kind of whatever. But if you were good at it and, you know, then, you know, you know it's, it's a living, it's, it's a way of funding it, funding a kind of lifestyle. And I mean, certainly the film, uh, the, the segment makes it look, I mean, you know, other than like, you know, the one thing we'll get to, uh, makes it look kind of appealing. Makes it look like, yeah, no, I not necessarily the way I want to live my life, but you know, hey, you I, know, kind of, I, I would not. Well, yeah, I would not want to be seventy years old and digging holes. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But you know, and you know, it's a you know relative. You know, given the other characters in this film, you know, like sit down and kind of think about the other people in this mm-hmm. world and in this film. He's living a better life than like like almost everybody else. Let's just leave yeah. it at that. Um, uh, some gorgeous photography. I mean, really the whole film is filled with yeah. gorgeous photography, but I think, you know, the, it looks really appealing. It's really nice to see green in a Western. Like you hardly, like you shoot so much shit in the desert. It's really nice to get that kind of like Colorado, like green, like forest and, you know, oh, and yeah. kind of stuff. Well, I love how he walks in this unspoiled valley and he, and he stops and looks at it for a minute. And then he goes back to get his donkey. But he's got to look back at least twice while he's getting his donkey. He's like, holy shit, that's beautiful right, shit. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. So and he goes in and he makes his mark. And he kind of leaves it. He leaves a little bit of a scar. But ultimately, yeah, you know, like it's nature. It's going to grow back. It's it's part of the part of the process, you know. And the really dark version of this would be he found a really giant gold seam. And then, like, this becomes like the, you know, the. Like this becomes a Denver, <laughs> you, know? <Yeah. laughs> you know. This did uh, the segment rewatching it did make me want to rewatch Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I think we should put that on the list. Um, that would be good, you know, yeah. Which, uh, you know, because the other thing is that we kind of get this kind of mythology of the prospect. I mean, not even the mythology, like the stereotype of the prospector is like the old prospector. You know, like my gold. You got to get my gold, and mm. they're just kind of like the crazy, you know, off the wall. Um, character kind of living on their own talking to themselves and you get a little bit of that here but it's also a very humanizing uh, portrait it's also like no this is just kind of the the way this guy is and the life he wants to lead and you know yeah. i mean the the eccentric weirdo kind of living by his own rules uh, this was what the west i mean this is kind of what the west is about and that's what i mean at least the mythology of the west and for this film i mean for this segment you get to embrace that mythology and get to see the positive side of that and i, and I think that's great 
Yeah, I mean, he took a little gold. Uh, he took one egg. Uh, you he know, took he, one egg. He he, he ate a fish. Um, you yeah, know, uh, the, and the, the, um, somebody tried to take it from him. I guess we should talk about that. You know, yeah. You, there's this. this... Literally, there, there are literally two characters in this entire segment, <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, one of them this... shoots the other, and then the other shoots the first one. Oh, and this. <sighs> First time I watched this film, I was like, "Oh fuck you, Cohen Brothers." Oh yeah, this, no, you think too... he's dead? You think? Yeah, you think we're just gonna walk away and it's just gonna be like in this guy? Yeah, you know, literally. I I think I, there is a metaphor. I think, and I and I think you know it's it's a little bit heavy handed once you think about it. And I'm gonna elucidate it here, and it's gonna. But you know, like <laughs> the prospector, he climbs a tree and he takes the one egg instead of four eggs, and so you know, like he's leaving, you know, so so he's not taking everything mm-hmm. but he's kind of acting as a like kind of a cuckoo he's kind of him taking the not really acting like a cuckoo but he's he's kind of acting kind of scavenging and uh instead of like making food for himself i guess and there is a little bit of the metaphor that the other guy is just like waiting for somebody else to do the work and then like yeah. he's gonna take the spoils and there is this kind of thing of like because he only took the one egg yeah you get shot but you're gonna live and you get to keep your gold you know well so. Yeah, it seems like there's, like, a hint of that because the owl is, like, constantly, like, looking above down on him and sort of judging him kind of thing, yeah. right? So, like, like, nature is judging the uh, sort of the affairs of man in a way. You know, there is this yeah, kind of tension. Yeah, and that, and that owl sort of distracts the the kid who's who, who's been trailing him. Mm-hmm. Like, he shoots him, and now he's, like, rolling a cigarette and smoking or whatever. And then all of a sudden that owl in the distance does a little owl screech and flies off, and he looks away momentarily so you like that could have been the moment where uh oh uh tom waits character takes a breath or whatever after like holding his breath and bleeding, <laughs> right. the, bleeding in that hole right. and then then he goes down to check on him and that's where tom waits overpowers him and shoots him in the fucking face <laughs> yeah through the hand into the face Nicely yeah done, tom waits. and then shoots him a couple more times because he's oh, indignant yeah. about he's being pissed. shot in yeah. the back you shot me in the back. You were taken. Oh my! I mean, imagine I would be pissed too. Like mm-hmm. you know, that's a moment. You know, yeah. Yeah, I'm you, you skunk! You shot me in the back. You <laughs> shot me in the back. He's even, even when he just realizes it, it went clean through and then hit any vitals. He's like, he's still, he's still like really mad about. It. It's like you shot me clean through and it, <laughs> you, you skunk. <laughs> Then he uh, takes all the gold out and buries the guy in the uh, in the in the hole, and mm-hmm. you know you do you do wonder how many uh, how many uh, old skeletons are rotting in holes like that in the uh, in the American West. Probably, a lot. Uh, a lot. yeah, probably under like some trees, you yeah. know, kind of thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, in like fifty years, maybe he gave back to the place that he tore shit from. <laughs> he, he, he made a tree, you know, out of that fucking idiot. Yeah, who knows. But, uh, mm. Good segment. I mean, great performance. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that one. Uh, so we'll move on to the longest segment in this film, yep. The Gal Who Got Rattled. I'll let you start with this one. I really like this one. I think this is the one that feels the most like a full-fledged film. I mean, I've said that a mm-hmm. couple of times. Uh, this could... I mean, I can't imagine how you sell this to an audience, which is kind of the, the challenge. But this is definitely the one that feels the most Coen Brothers-y, like as, as kind of a full narrative feature. It's got some really understated great performances. I mean, you know, Tom Waits is amazing because he's just kind of like doing it, like literally just almost doing everything himself in that sequence. Uh, but I think the two, uh, Zoe Kazan and then uh, what's his name, the guy who plays uh, Bill Heck. Uh, Bill Heck is yeah, the actor. Billy Knapp yeah. is the, uh, yeah. I think there's that's two really phenomenal performances where these two people who kind of 
find themselves and kind of slowly fall in love. And, you know, it's a, it's a really kind of delightful, like kind of comedy of manners in a way you get a really intricate narrative. There's kind of a political narrative kind of going underneath this um, in terms of the brother who is a bad businessman who, you mm-hmm. know, we kind of learn later on that he's what's called a doe face. And these were, um, you know, people like kind of Northerners who supported like the South and kind of the pre-Civil War and then kind of the post-Civil War. Um, you get the feeling this is somewhat after um, 1872. So the, the, the Land Grant Act had been passed. And so yeah. this is you know, kind of briefly after that. So we're in the middle of Reconstruction. And, you know, it's are we going to kind of move on and kind of visit the new way or are we going to uh, kind of be high down to the past? So there is this kind of narrative about, you know, this political future and about like kind of what America is going to be in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's really buried that, you know, you didn't even really notice it unless you kind of go and kind of look up what, what they're really kind of referring to. And I think that that's uh, something I really love about this. But other than that, this is like hugely technically complicated, like leading this wagon train. I mean, I'm sure there's some CGI, you know, in there as well. Amy, but, uh, yeah, but they they built all the wagons and everything like yeah yeah all that's all that stuff is all that stuff is is there i mean you know leading i mean there is a little bit of the the kind of herzog you know a geary wrath of god you know there is kind (laughs) of there is a little bit of that going on i mean you kind of get the the sense of like that's what made all those like massive like uh sorted sandal productions so expensive and so like huge back in the day was just like getting all the people to look in the right direction at the right time um there's a there's a huge technical challenge with they they just really just kind of like relegate it into the background in a way um to these to just kind of following these characters around and kind of watching this kind of narrative of this kind of budding romance i mean last week we did soldier blue and uh, i was kind of like thinking about this while i was watching that because, because this, this does, is a rom-com that turns into a horrific <laughs> that turns into a horrific violence at the end but also like uh the the tone is like spot on like you totally get what what it's doing yeah i mean i think i think the understatedness of it is easy to kind of overlook just how well written this is but i i really love this one this is this is probably i mean I'm just, this is my favorite segment of the of the film um so what do you think you're probably a little bit less positive on it than i am no, I liked it a lot. It has, I think, you know, beyond the sort of political reading that you, you threw in there with, with the history of, you know, Reconstruction and all that. I thought it was, you know, it brought back that sort of harshness and how cheap life was, but it focuses on how, like, helpless women were at this yeah, time, sure. you know, mm-hmm. where they're so dependent on men that not only is she, like, left basically a ship afloat in a fucking vast sea after her brother dies. She's still dependent on like a nice guy to, you know, show up, carry her out of all this. And, but, but I do love like the little sort of budding romance that happens. He's, he's making all these proposals like, well, I could, you know, I could pay off this fucking scumbag. He's trying to fleece you for all this money and we could set up. Actually, actually, I totally believe that the brother like offered him this like huge amount of money. Probably did because he's a bad business. Because he's a really shitty human being who has an adorable, but yippee dog as someone who has an adorable, but yippee dog. I, 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 I sympathize. That's the one thing I sympathize with in that character, you know, but I like it because she starts to find herself and there's genuine attraction between the two of them. And they, they get past the sort of social, pretext that they have to sort of like filter through to right. like basically say hey i want to really fuck you and then spend my life with you kind of thing you know <laughs> right and then the movie or the segment which actually 
yeah, it should be a movie. Well, I, I'd, I'd love to see this as a movie. No, no, no. I would love to see this whole thing. You know? um, Again, but, impossible to sell as a, as a film. Like, you, you Yeah, know, I mean, it, w- it would be like some thing that showed up on Netflix and no one ever talked about kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it gets really sad and ironic at the end. And yep. then there's this other thing going on, too. Uh, Billy Knapp who wants to leave the life of leading wagon trains and become a farmer and settle down with her. He has this relationship with the old wagon train guy and it's sort of a father son relationship. And it sort of gets into how men can't talk to each other openly. And honestly, you know, like, yeah, sure. So there's a, there's a lot of like gender kind of issues here and just kind of like the social niceties. And I mean, there is the kind of like, (laughs) there's a little bit of like, this is sort of what we, what we leave society behind for. This is a little bit what the West is about. So the mythology of the West is that we don't have to have these kind of niceties anymore. And I think part of the kind of paradox of the wagon train is that you're both sort of in, you're among the savages, quote unquote, you know, Uh, you know, you're, you're sort of away from, from, you know, your civil society. And yet you're kind of, captured within this sort of like social reality as well and i think that um it does sort of play on that idea of you know you're like you're both sort of away from you know kind of the outside prying eyes to some degree but you've brought a bunch of prying eyes with you and so um kind of kind of that paradox is there um this is uh this is definitely i mean it's it's a romance in kind of both sense of the words it's both kind of a a romance sort of the modern sense of man and a woman falling in love um it's also uh kind of a you know it's shot romantically it's shot in this way that makes makes this look kind of very appealing i mean this is gorgeous photography this is gorgeous setting you know and you know this doesn't look to be like that difficult i mean you know it does look to be just sort of like oh we're just gonna kind of you know sit in a wagon and kind of walk next to it i mean there's a kid like this guy i'm gonna walk backwards all the way to oregon you know (laughs) which was founded as an all-white ethno state just by the by the way that's what Oregon was specifically founded to be all whites in the constitution <laughs> um you know and not something that is mentioned in the film but uh part of the real history that probably worth mentioning whenever we talk about yeah. the Oregon trail yeah no i really i really like this one and then it kind of gets to this thing like there's this narrative about the dog that that sort of runs through the whole um the whole segment where um the dog belongs to the annoying uh, brother who you know is basically you know kind of says yeah it's my dog and the dog barks i mean i don't give a fuck you know yeah, I'm, kind of, yeah I'm, I'm kind of on you know i'm kind of on board with you you know this is my dog fuck you you know what do you want from me and uh, then uh you know yes. when after sorry go ahead i was just gonna say so is the dog basically just like a means of saying she never quite gets away from her brother like she just kind of yeah well, I mean, I think there's this, you know, the reality is that she did have a fondness for the dog. I mean, even at the beginning, you kind of see the dog was, you know, kind of underneath her, her feet at first, you know, in the in kind of that dinner, that very funny, like, dinner table scene yeah. where, you know, oh, no, there's more food. Yeah, you can just eat off of her plate. She's done. Yeah. Just take three of food from her. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's very Cohen Brothers, that sequence, yeah. you know. And then later on when, you know, like, hell of a wage hell of a wage you know when um what's his name um mr arthur mr arthur is yeah. like that's a hell of a wage four hundred dollars so that's a that's a hell of, i was just thinking about like that's 
you know, that's not a great return, Jerry, from Fargo. It's a very, you know, like, it, it, this feels very, like, classic Coen Brothers to me. Like, all the, like, great Coen Brothers bits. This is, the, this 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 kind of, like, encapsulates that. Possibly why I love this one so much is that it just does have that kind of classic finding that tone and just, like, hitting it right on that mark every time. But, the, but there is this kind of narrative about the dog where, like, so the, the brother dies. And then the dog is still, like, barking around. And then Billy Knapp kind of walks up to Alice. And uh, he's like, uh, you know, so uh, we need to talk about your dog, but he can't like just say it in that many <laughs> words. He's like, it's not my dog. It's not my dog. It was, it was my brother's dog. Oh, well, I'm just going to go kill it then. It's fine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then when he fails, like the dog runs away before he can shoot, like just dodges the bullet or whatever. Um, he just, you know, and you could say like, maybe he just intentionally just shot next to the dog just to make yeah, the dog run away. That's so, what I thought happened. And then, then he has the line like, I should have caught up, brought on Mr. Arthur as my second <laughs> to make sure that dog was dead. <laughs> it's, just, it's such a like life is cheap and nobody cares anymore because it's such an adorable fucking dog. And then the dog, you know, comes back and then it ends up, you know, she kind of goes out and, you know, leaves the wagon train into the um, uncharged wilderness of the uh, native savages, mm-hmm. uh, quote unquote. And, uh, Maybe maybe we should talk about what happens at the end of this uh, sequence here, where uh, Mister yeah. Arthur shows why you why you bring an old uh, an old cow hand along. She gets out in the middle of nowhere, and then all of a sudden he spots uh, the Indian, and well, she's like, "It's all right, it's just one Indian, right?" And it's like, "No, there's a war party coming. Uh, yep. that's, that's what's happening." And, and he didn't take gonna... my peace sign, which is the other thing, you know. Where yeah, where, it's like know, so. Yeah, he's very matter-of-fact. Yeah, we're going to fight. And here's the thing. I'm going to try to kill their leader. If I can kill him, they might leave. Otherwise, we're probably fucked. We're, we're probably going to have to fight it out. And he gives her a pistol. And there's bullets in here. They're not for the Indians. They're for you. Uh, if, if I get killed, you got to shoot yourself because they're going to rape you and they're going to, like, skin you and all this other shit and while you're still alive. Yeah, no, he, he described... I mean, and again, this is where, you know, the, the, the Coen's are definitely kind of leaning into that. Like they are acknowledging the kind of basic racism of the, of this Mm -hmm. period and of these characters, because I mean, the description of like, this is what they're going to do to you. And it's literally like, they're going to like stab you. They're going to like, you know, bind you to the ground and they're going to rape you. And then they're going to like cut pieces off of you and eat you is essentially what he implies. And uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that's not actually, like you know, quite what what's going on there? You know, I mean, scalping, and yeah, some, he, some mutilation, etc. But uh, he essentially scares her into into her own death, basically. right? Exactly, because you know, and then like he, and so there's a fight. I mean, it's a really nice little action scene. I, I really love you know, sort of sort of a uh, these kind of low key, kind of low budget, but kind of modern action sequences of this kind where you do get mm-hmm. um, some, some nice little stunt work. It's a nicely directed action scene. I mean, these guys are good directors. <laughs> they, they know how to do this. Yeah. They, and, they, uh, uh, they set it up well. Cause it's, they're in a stretch of land that's full of gopher holes. So he's like, yeah. okay, this, this will be to our advantage. Uh, they're, the Indians don't know it. They're going to run down. Some of them are inevitably going to hit some of these gopher holes and their horses are going to go down. So we have yeah. a bit of an advantage here. We can, you know, fight them on kind of equal ground. And, and that it, it kind of feels like a realistic, like a realistic thing yeah. where I've got a rifle. They're going to come in. I'm going to, you know, be shooting at them. They really can't hit me from, you know, I can hit them with my rifle, but then they can hit me on horseback. I mean, yeah. there, there is a sort of like tactical 
reality to this. I mean, there are not just a tactical, like tactical in terms of the actual tactics of it, but there's also a tactile reality. I mean, it feels like a real situation that real people might get themselves into yeah. in this, you know, kind of situation. And I mean, look, I'm not denying that like war parties existed and like would pick off people from wagon trains. That's not the, the denial here. It's just the mm. sort of portrayal of the, of the sort of like, not portraying the like the genocide that's happening all around them all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know? you know it's just kind of again the failure of the, the, the there's no like Native American speaking part in this film. So and then uh, he scares her so much, you know. I mean, realistically, so within this kind of reality mm-hmm. that when he um, falls briefly, um, she she she's a fucking badass. She does it. She puts yep. a bullet in her own fucking head. One bullet went done, and then he's got to go and figure out how to tell. Fiance, you know, whoops, still got the dog though. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, the, like the the line is or whatever for the the pictures. He he did not, Mister Arthur did not know what he was going to tell Billy Knapp or whatever. You know, it's like yeah, it's just just left at that. It's very very tragic and very sad, but not quite as dark as you know the the fucking. No, no, bullet. I mean, but it, but it, it's so light up to them that it, i mean it does sort of it does convince me that that you know you could remake soldier blue and kind of do it in a in a more uh, nuanced way and more balanced way and kind of get at some of that contradiction and in um, a way people like a, a big audience would like to see it maybe <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> all right and then we uh, move on to our final segment the mortal remains kind of <laughs> the most gothic horror of the yeah definitely film, definitely yeah. yep no uh, it, it feels like a. Uh, it felt to me like a segment in an Amicus anthology film, like the, yeah. the end segment where everybody who's been in all the anthology stories get to the end and find it. Oh, we've been in hell all all along, or we're, yeah. we're going to our to death. You know, that, that's pretty much what this is. You know, I mean, you 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 almost do wish it had been like James Franco and you know like yeah. um, Louis Kazan and you know everything, and then suddenly it's like. Oh no no this is this is all just you know but uh I like this one I, I really mm-hmm. like the the again the the kind of the, the trapper the fur trapper character who's kind of like the prospector <laughs> character I love the extended uh riff on uh loneliness and how people just need to hear other people talk tedious uh, they call me yes, tedious they call me <laughs> I walk into the saloon and I and then they call me tedious and they ask me to leave tedious fool they call me I say there's not another saloon anywhere around here, so uh, you know why? Why would you ask me to leave? It's yeah, no, it's, it's it comes it's, down to from the mountains with uh, a, a bunch of knowledge accumulated that he has to share with everybody and shit, and it's like I have many stories to tell for my yeah. months alone on the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, kind of a delightful character. I mean, it starts off as this kind of like funny, like you think it's going to be a little bit of a riff on the film Stagecoach. You know, you think it's just gonna very. Kind of be... uh, it's, it's like if Tarantino remade Stagecoach. Yeah, um, no, I mean, very, very much so. I mean, oh, it's, and it's... Uh, and Tim Burton shot it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a very Tim Burton vibe. I like that. I like that. Uh, you almost need a like a Danny Elfman score to, yeah. to you know, like sell the. Uh, I mean, you could imagine this is sort of the opening of a Tim Burton movie in a way, like kind of a Tim Burton, like uh, you know, sort of a sort of a gothic horror comedy uh, set in the old West. Like you could see these characters, you know, kind of getting in a murder mystery or something, you know. In well, the, it, it in looks, the, in the it, end. It, yeah, like opening shots in this, it looks and feels a lot like the Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow. Like mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it feels a lot like that. Um, but yeah, then you get to the conversations and what you come to sort of realize and like 
this is just my take on it, but I think this is kind of obvious. It's basically two reapers watching a bunch of dead people talk about what it's like, what what it means to be alive. Like, sure, what, yeah, yeah, and it, because it's something they don't understand, they just their job is just collecting souls, basically. Right, right. I mean, it's, you got your your three characters um, who are not the 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 hitmen, you know. Or, yeah, you know, you could read it either as metaphor or as kind of right reality. I mean, you know, it's it's. It's ambiguity of the. That's of why the it was smart world. not to. That's why it was smart not to take like dead characters from the previous segment. Right, right, right. Because right, yeah, 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 it's no. too on the nose, right? No, no, no. It would be on the. I mean, it's, it's just more. You know, it's kind of, it would be funny if that's what they had done. Yeah. But, you know. Um, <laughs> no, I, I like that. Uh, they, they do have kind of a uh, an argument about uh, kind of the nature of humanity, you know, because mm. uh, you know the fur trapper says, you know, all people basically the same. You know, they're like, they're like at, ferrets. And despite the fact, despite the fact that he's got some like racist ideas. In himself he's like you put you put a you put a white man next to a man from siam and you know the hardly any difference between them it's like you know what you you sir despite the fact that you know you the the jabberings of her native language you you know <laughs> but and yet you maintained a relationship with this person you know what i can work with you you're probably a really decent human being you probably do not smell very good <laughs> yet um uh, you know i like you i like you sir you know, probably yeah, the, do not uh, want to sit next to you in the in the saloon. But you know, I yeah I'm... the uh, the Indian partner that he took for a while yeah. obviously got tired of him too because he was just such a bore. That right. basically she what was, it was. It's very clear that they had a very fulfilling sexual relationship, and mm. then uh, she just moves on. And was like, hey, you know, it's a thing that happens. Yeah, <laughs> I never understood the jabberings of her language. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she she spoke no English, and I have not been schooled in the jabberings of the natives <laughs> or something like that. So, you know, it's again just that kind of delightful dialogue, just that sort of like it's it's a really great little little monologue he has. So, yeah. so his thing is like all people are basically the same, and then uh, you know you get our our religious uh, kind of fundy who's like you know no there are two types of people you know are you thinking of trappers and townspeople or those the two types of people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then and no, it's it's the uh, it's the saved and the unsaved, the yeah. sinners and the saved, you know, sort of thing. And so she's got this very like kind of morally wrecked, and she's just kind of doing that thing, and uh, you know, very very proper, you know. Although you know, it's uh, it's kind of like complicated thing of being you know in the out west and you know all that sort of thing. She's and she's, she's, she's going so in back denial. To her, she's so in she, denial about yeah. everything. You know, I guarantee you this woman has ha, has some has some history. I guarantee you she's she's seen some shit. You don't you don't mm. get to be like that big of a stick up your ass. She's probably she's probably a reformed like uh you know, her her husband saved her quote unquote from like a, a brothel somewhere and then you know, this is like no, 40 years later maybe. The, the the reality of a character like this who is who is like kind of behaving in this in this way and you know kind of like running a school or kind of doing whatever she's doing like she's torturing children this is this, yeah. this is just the nature this is this is what this is how she spends her time and yet she's you know kind of more you know because she she dresses nicely and she carries a bible etc she's the and then you get the 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 frenchman who um you know loves the great pleasures in life the gambler and uh his kind of opinion is that you know there there's the gambling reveals the nature of a man's soul and that there is no that I can know you as well as anything but the way you will bet in this moment that to, and so there's this kind of like deep individualism kind of built into and so in a sense you have this kind of like 
you know, universalist kind of like socialist kind of vision of like all human beings have an inherent worth. Then you have this sort of morally erect and that there's the elect and the unelect and, you know, Mm -hmm. regardless. And then you kind of get the kind of libertarian-ish individualist perspective of, you know, and then, you know, the, we, we know who people are based on their kind of the way they spend their money and the, the risks they take, et cetera. And, you know, so, so there, there is a sort of like a philosophical doctrine that's kind of being espoused here. And then you find out like what's really going on <laughs> and uh, you get very funny, very kind of horrifying gothic horror kind of like dialogue about uh, these, these two hitmen. I, again, you can imagine this as being a, uh, you know, kind of, kind of Tarantino-esque in a way, you know, it is the, you know, Tarantino's like collided with this like Gothic horror thing, you know, it gets disturbing whether they're hitmen or reapers. It doesn't matter right, each, yeah. because once they start like the, the Englishman, John Joe O'Neill, the stuff he starts talking about is, you know, after, after Brendan Gleeson clubs are, uh, are prey to death. And they, they're laying on the floor dying. He likes to look into their eyes and see if they, you know, if if they've come to like some sort of realization about their existence. And then, the, do they do they ever find it? How would I know? I'm just watching. Yeah, I'm just like, watching. Jesus Christ, dude, you are such a fucked up little man. He's and he's got a big smile on his face when he's saying, "I'm just watching." Yeah, like just he enjoys it so much. Them. It's, it's them, you know? Yeah, yeah and uh, I I definitely side with uh, Sal Rubinek uh, as far as the conversation goes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like, I like his take on things. Like he's very realistic about a lot of things that I think he's the, he's the character who quickly sort of catch, not necessarily quickly, but he catches on before any of the other ones. About, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh shit. I'm, I'm going to my final judgment here. Like right. that, that's what's happening. I, and also there's this theme that I picked up watching at this time, in the film, there's several mentions of Frenchmen, <laughs> like the, like the town Buster Scruggs goes into is right, right, Frenchman is, something, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I mean, there's no, always there, there's there, there there's definitely some some deeper uh, narratives that are kind yeah. of woven through, you know. This uh, 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 did the Cohen secretly hate French people? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> was the was the prostitute in the uh, in the uh, meal ticket one? Was she French? That's really the question. I can't re- I can't remember. She might have been, but but I mean, there's a French there's a French character sitting around the card table in Buster Scruggs, and then Sal Rubinex, a Frenchman. There's mentions of Frenchmen uh, in in other segments. Sal Rubinek looks like a corpulent Edgar Allan Poe, which just kind of fits the whole gothic thing. I think. Uh, sure. I love it. I I, I think it, it it comes off as a funny little kind of joke about death, and you know, yeah. Sal Rubinek at the end, he's like. Uh, well, best walk into this hotel. Well, what else do you got to do? <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, no, no, I, I like it. It's, it's very, um, you know, we started off as kind of a Bugs Bunny cartoon and then we, we kind of end on, on this kind of Gothic horror thing. And I mean, you know, we've gone through like kind of almost every storytelling technique in, in the, in the middle. And, uh, I think it, it, it speaks to, uh, kind of the quality of the overall film that, uh, we kind of get to the end and it, it leaves us disquieted. And yet we've, we've, almost forgotten where we began. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, but you know, yeah, I, mean? I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's both like we could kind of sit and pick it apart, but there's kind of not much more to say about the mortal remains, except, uh, you know, man, it's, I love the, I love the kind of dialogue, the, <laughs> you know, again, almost, you know, it doesn't even feel Tarantino-esque. It feels sort of like a, like the parody Tarantino, you know, of yeah. like the two hitmen where they pull the body off and it's like, 
he's staying in your room. Oh, we could set him up in the parlor and, you know, like put a, put a newspaper in front of him. Oh, he's staying in your room. Whatever you say, boss, you know, and there's, yeah. a, there's a little bit of a sort of, uh, sort of, sort of that, that, that kind of, I don't think they're, they're aping Tarantino. I think they're more aping the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, like the, the buddy comedy kind of, kind of routine. I mean, there, there is a sort of, uh, you know, slapsticky kind of thing. I mean, we, we end on that slapsticky kind of dialogue. I mean, that's, those are basically the last lines, not, not exactly, but basically the last dialogue spoken in the film. And yet, you know, because we've, we've now gone through this entire like tonal shift, it has much, uh, you know, the, the darkness that was kind of implicit in the, in the beginning of the film is now like kind of over, over, overbearing. I found it interesting though. Um, so like they get to Fort Morgan or whatever the fuck it is that they're, they're supposed to be going to, which is essentially like either, you know, you go to heaven or you go to hell kind of thing. Um, the hotel itself, if you notice the basement is all lit up, like it's all yeah. like, you know, <laughs> the color of fire, basically right, yellow yeah, fire. Yeah. Um, and uh, on the doors, one of the doors has an angel face. The other has a devil on it. So, I mean, it's, like once you pick up these details it's like okay yeah obviously but uh they drag the the body the bounty hunters uh quote unquote drag the body upstairs and you kind of thinking okay so they must be taking him to heaven for whatever reason uh you notice the lady and the trapper they sort of walk off to the sides like maybe they go downstairs or something like that right and then as uh, sal rubinek uh he closes the doors behind him and you don't see where he goes which right, is right. kind of interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's like some deeper kind of thing you can like dig dig into there, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think really the key is that Saul Rubinick is in real life Jewish, so you know that's that's kind of like the, <laughs> the deeper the deeper metaphor. You know, is that he doesn't get to go to either place. He's got to he's got to stay in limbo. Because, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, poor Saul, poor Saul. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no. Um, I love this film. What what can you say? Yeah. It's it's like it's like the Coen Brothers' greatest hits almost, but that yeah. just sounds flippant and dismissive. And right, right. Yeah. Like yeah. No, no. It, it is just kind of like it, I, I think. I mean, you know, and, and you know, one of our side projects is we're kind of doing the Marvel movies and we're kind of doing these these kind of bigger budget things. And one of the things that uh, you know, kind of you get into when you when you look into interviews that these guys did about the film was, uh, you know, the big studios aren't funding this kind of movie anymore. Like the big right. studios are just funding Marvel movies and like, you know, the big tentpole action pictures and, and that sort of stuff. Like there's an, and you know, I love that stuff. This is it, super fun, but like this kind of like quirky, we're going to spend $40 million and make $60 million kind of, kind of, kind of film. Um, th- nobody's, nobody's making this except like Netflix. And this is a uh, part of the uh, Annapurna uh, pictures. Yeah. Uh, production um and you know that 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 production company has produced like basically all the interesting films that have been made in hollywood for the last you know like 10 years mm-hmm. that's that's overstating it but i mean you know it really is like if you're if you're a quirky independent filmmaker there just aren't that many places to go with your stuff anymore and I, apparently they were even kind of like displeased with sort of the netflix experience of kind of dealing with like netflix notes and sort of the the process of kind of going right, right. through the Netflix formula. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's just a bad time to be a filmmaker in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, because, you know, the, the, the industry is changing and, and nobody's, uh, nobody's kind of sure kind of how to, how to do this anymore, unless you're, unless you're kind of willing to kind of make these kind of four quadrant pictures and these, these kind of big $200 million, you know, popcorn movies and i mean i was I was kind of talking about this one talking about the um the girl who got rattled and it's sort of like mm-hmm. you know 
And you can imagine this is a full movie. How do you sell this in 2019? Right. Like, how do you, I mean, how do you sell, I mean, other than it being like, oh, this is the new Netflix Coen Brothers film. I mean, you, you look at like, uh, there's a new Tarantino film coming out and they're basically just selling it as like, Quentin Tarantino made a new movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's got Brad Pitt being goofy. Who knows if that's actually what the movie's about come watch it you know and that, that's kind of the only way you can you can sell these things anymore it's just kind of based on like a kind of a perceived you know directorial style or a writer style yeah and, there's I mean, like and a... that gets and that means it's even harder to break in than it, than it ever has been you know in a lot of ways unless you do something like super indie and you just like throw it up on youtube or whatever i don't know it's it's a there's a there's a really kind of complicated thing kind of going on uh, structurally in terms of the film business. And I think that the fact that this film, you know, it got a very brief like window release on um, in theaters just to give it a, uh, like a qualifying run for, for the Oscars. Earned, uh, yeah. Earned like $45,000 in its uh, theatrical release. Right. Which, I mean, it showed in a couple of theaters and, you know, got, you know, like people came and saw the new Coen brothers movie, but that's not, you know, it didn't go out to like, 2000 theaters or whatever you know no and uh netflix doesn't give us any (laughs) on like oh well first netflix doesn't say how much we paid for it and then they don't say like what does the views on netflix itself equal out to dollars like that so i mean i mean there there's no i mean it is just kind of well i mean that opacity is in some ways i mean i've I've, i remember kind of seeing interviews with people who's like you know, TV show went from like network to cable kind of back, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, you know, like when you're on network every week, they tell you like, this is where the, this is where the numbers were. This is, you know, this is what the rating was. This is kind of where we are. And, you know, kind of where, but then you, you go to cable and suddenly everybody's like, yeah, you know, it's a thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's not that they don't care about it, but they're not like super focused on it anymore. And um, I mean, I guarantee you Netflix has, you know, they have spreadsheets like they know like oh, yeah. kind of what their revenue model is. But ultimately, you know, when you're thinking about it like a subscription service, ultimately, it's the whole package. It's the whole thing that we're selling. That's the thing that, you know, we're kind of driving revenue. And so the idea is that while Ballad of Buster Scruggs is available on Netflix, people will like be slightly more likely, you know, so so there's a, there's more of a disconnect between people watching this thing and people paying for this thing, you know, which, yeah. And I mean, they're definitely trying to figure this stuff out because I mean, Netflix is sort of at a sort of pivot point right now where they're losing their ability to license anything that's not made in, in studio now with them or whatever. Well, I mean, ultimately, I mean, we, I mean, I think you and I have had this conversation like back, I think a few did. years ago, yeah. and like I know we've talked about kind of the Netflix model before. And I mean, the thing is that like back in like 2011, Netflix was kind of the only game in town. And so, you know, like they could get streaming rights for just about anything really cheaply. Yeah. And so like every movie just showed up on Netflix. That is not the, the case any longer, you know, yeah. um, a whole lots, a whole lot of stuff that doesn't show up there. And so, you know, you've got to have all the different subscription services or you got to like rent it on Amazon if Amazon has it and all that kind of thing. And so it becomes a, a much more kind of fragmented, um, you know, kind of media landscape. And, and Disney, when that, that Disney's fucking uh, streaming service comes up, they have a legit shot at like just killing Netflix. Oh, it's entirely possible because, yeah. you know, like, Almost everything you're gonna to want to watch is just owned or part owned by. <laughs> they Disney, own all you know? the They own everything. They, they just own, own it. Childhoods, you know. You know? Like yeah, they own. They own everything. Yeah, yeah, no, it's gonna be. It's uh, you know, who knows? And, and so Netflix. I mean, their their model is is uh, you know, making making. I mean, ultimately, their model is 
we're going to give you enough mild entertainment that you're going to sit down and want to watch enough of this that you're not going to cancel your subscription. Right. Like, that's the whole point. That's the whole like goal of Netflix is, yep. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and that's, and that, that pushes them to make things like uh like extended, you know, 25 hour television series instead of like a three hour movie or two and a half hour movie. I mean, I saw a tweet where somebody is like, Oh, I, I rewatched the third man. And I was thinking like, what would the third man look like if it was a six hour Netflix miniseries? Oh. You know, the, like the, like that opening sequence of the third man, which is basically the, you know, talking about just sort of setting the stage. And that would be like an hour and a half of laborious, like talking through history and, Ugh. you know, this, you know, brown and gray, like sepia tone, whatever. And then like the Netflix series and like, imagine how insufferable that would be before you ever get to anything interesting. And uh, <sighs> Yeah, but as it stands now, Netflix is basically just coming up with new series. Most of them fail, and they throw them in the river. And go on to the next one. And there's still, I mean, there's still some good stuff on Netflix. I mean, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not, yeah. you know, not complaining, but uh, you know, it's it's, I don't know. That's where we are. But uh, yeah. Buster Cruz, really good. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we should film. we should uh, rate the uh, we should we should uh, rank yeah. the uh, the segments. I think. Um, so so. so I feel like I have a favorite and a least favorite, and then mm-hmm. you know there's a whole lot of middle for me. I don't know how you feel about that. Like, where are you? Do you? Yeah, do you have um, like a clear like one through six. So I didn't really make a list ahead of time. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to kind of work it out. But you know, where, where do you stand on that? Yeah, um, I think, I think I still sit like the initial Buster Scruggs as my favorite. Yeah. Um, it, it it's very close though. Like, um. Uh, my my least favorite one is near El Algonones. Algonones, um, just because it's so short. There's like very little to it, really. Right, like right. It, but I mean, after that, um, I think the gal who got rattled sits right under Buster Scruggs for me because mm-hmm. uh, I think there's so much to sort of like uh, pull out of there. And then I go All Gold Canyon, Mortal Remains, and Meal Ticket. And, sure. and 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 I think meal tickets great. Like I think all these segments are pretty fucking great as far as what they you know what they did with them. But uh, meal tickets so goddamn depressing that I just have to sit it down right, uh, right. Ne- near near you know second to last kind of thing. Sure. I mean, I would go girl who got rattled is is my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. I'd put ballad of Buster Scruggs is is second. Um, just because it's just such a, like, so much fun, you know, I'd probably put, uh, all gold Canyon at number three for me. Brilliant performance. Just, yep. just kind of great. Um, meal tickets at the bottom. And then I don't know, man, I'd probably, after talking to you, I want to put mortal remains higher because, <laughs> you know, I think there is some really interesting stuff in there and I do yep. like it, but it's also kind of like, it feels a little bit like the, uh, like, uh, you know, the, the coda to the end of, like, like it's kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm now done watching this, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it also kind of comes right after The Girl Who Got Rattled, which I feel like is, because that one's the strongest for me, I do feel like the, the kind of the challenges that you've kind of, like, I could see the movie ending right there and not needing the, the kind of the, the last 20 right. minutes, you know. Um, so it does feel just a little bit like, like more of an epilogue, um, which I think is, I mean, it does seem structurally they kind of, you know, Valid Buster Scruggs and Moral Remains are sort of the, you know, they are kind of the bookends that kind of, you know, just fit between the rest mm-hmm. of them. So. Yeah. so, yeah, no, I would probably put, uh, I don't know, I don't have strong feelings about, I mean, I, I have strong feelings that The Girl Who Got Rattled is my favorite and that Meal Ticket is my least favorite. Again, it's good, it just feels a little bit overlong and it kind of feels like one idea that just doesn't, you know, that just 
there, there's not a lot there other than just sort of like the amazing filmmaking, but ultimately just, it's just kind of a pure exercise in filmmaking as opposed to something that's got a little bit more heft to it. I don't know. So yeah. 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 That's fair weird. enough. Uh, so, any other performances you'd want to highlight? Uh, you know, uh, any other kind of moments that we didn't that we didn't get to? Well, uh, I mean, I know we've been going for like uh, almost ninety minutes, so that's a little bit long for us. But this film is so good, and there's so much to talk yeah, about. I just no, I did want to uh, I did just want to make sure we kind of hit any any other high points that you just wanted to to to, to get to. Well, Alice. Uh, Zoe Kazan. Yeah, Zoe Kazan. I thought she was who's really the good. granddaughter of Elliot Kazan. Oh really? Really? I didn't know that. Shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought she was. I honestly, I thought all the performances. It, it's very hard to kind of pick and choose. Like I, I still think Tom Weiss is the best performance in the whole thing. No, no, I just, absolutely. I, just, I love that. And then uh, Buster Scruggs himself. Just, oh yeah, yeah. Tim Blake Nelson, who apparently was given a version of the script in like 2002. No. Oh. And then finally, you know, like in 2016, they're like, oh, hey, I this might saw, actually happen. Yeah. yeah, I saw that interview, I think, where he said, he's like, I'm not old enough for this or something like that. At that it's point, like, maybe. you will be. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, the, the dude's just like fucking Bugs Bunny come to life. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's very good. And uh, Sal Rubinek, I think, it, big for me. I, I I love him in that. I, I love him in basically everything I ever see. Him no, in no, this, he, so. he, he's great. He's great. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I agree with all that. There's, you know, really nobody. Oh, um, Clancy Brown, yeah, Shirley Joe. <laughs> uh, we didn't mention again. Probably one of my favorite shots in the film, right there at the beginning. Uh, you know, because the 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 thing there is Buster Scruggs has been disarmed, mm-hmm. and then he sits down at the table and he doesn't want to. Uh, he looks at the cards, but then he doesn't want to play them. Which is a faux pas and the faux pas like that. Oh, there and there's a there's a circular thing there too because Sal Rubinek's character goes, "You can't play another person's hand." Oh, right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. that too. Interesting. Um, so uh, he sits down, he refuses to play, and then it's like, "Well, what if I what if what if I what if I refuse?" If and to, I don't, to, if and I don't, you know. Um, and then you know, Clancy Brown pulls out his guns. I was like, "Well, you should deposit those back at the you know because." We are all equally disarmed here. Otherwise, you know, you have an advantage over me. And then you get this shot where it just, you know, Clancy Brown just cocks the gun. You get a shot of the uh, the two men standing on either side of the table. And I mean, I guarantee, like, it looks like Clancy Brown has been like digitally enhanced in height or something. Like, it really, <laughs> like, tall. I don't think he's that tall. I mean, yeah. like, he might be tall. Actually, let's 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 look up Clancy Brown height just to see. I don't I don't think he's actually seven feet tall. No, but, he's not. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, Nelson, there he might he might be he might be. Short. Oh well, he's six three. So you know, they're, okay. Clancy Brown is six three. Wow. Okay. So maybe it isn't enhanced, but uh, maybe uh, it's just you know trick photography there. And then he literally just like kicks the uh, you kicks know the board kicks the, the board into his face to uh, to make him shoot himself in the face, and then he's dead. It's just such a great like just such a great little moment of cinema. Well, and it's just so much fun to you know to well, to watch that. He he, he makes he, and then he has a line. He's like, I normally wouldn't. I'm normally not one for subterfuge, but uh, when you're uh, disarmed uh, and in a dangerous situation, your uh, <laughs> your techniques have to be downright Archimedean. And it's and like, he uses oh my math God. to kill him, which oh is my God. brilliant. You know, 
Who tells the, the Archimedean it's like the, the lever. Archimedes yes. you know, invented the lever uh, in, in antiquity. And it's like, I mean, it's just one of those things of like, oh my God, Cohen Brothers, you know, Joel and Ethan Cohen, whoever wrote that line, you deserve all the awards. You deserve yeah. all. No, you know. it's, it's fucking amazing. It really yeah. is. Like, there's so many good little pieces in this that it's yeah. just, it's hard to pick them all. Yeah. But, so. Yeah. So yeah, no DVD info for this one, I guess. No, no, no I, trivia. I, 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 I wish uh, we kind of just like included the trivia in the actual conversation. So yeah, um, and DVD info. I hope sometime Netflix will I, get their I, head I, or their ass and just look at it on Amazon. And uh, apparently, you can buy the script if you're so inclined. But I could not find a DVD. Oh, the score. We should talk this. The Carter Carter Burwell, Burwell is it's amazing. It it's it it reminds me of Fargo. For, for, oh yeah, no, it reminds me. But it but it's old West Fargo. Like, yeah, no, it is. It is. Um, <laughs> so I hope I hope quite a bit of this music ends up in this podcast. There's going to be some, and, um, yeah. And of course the uh, the 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 Ballad of Buster Scruggs should, should mm-hmm. either be at the beginning or the end. I don't know. Like it's your decision, however you want to edit it, but. Yeah, I think I'm going to throw quite a bit of music in this. This is going to be a long one, folks. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we've been giving them like 45 minute episodes lately, so uh, yeah, you know, maybe maybe an extended sit is kind of what you need for a six part anthology film. Um, so yeah, what are we doing next time? Whoa. I don't know. Uh, we have maybe a, maybe horror, maybe something. Uh, I have a couple of uh, post apocalyptic uh, films. Maybe we might want to jump into or something you know sure. we're kind of we're kind of on the track now uh, daniel and i were sort of discussing this before where we might just you know like take two weeks here and there and do do a genre and then move on to something else instead of doing like these extended fucking like deep dives into westerns which right. this one was like what half a year or <laughs> feels Wasn't like that anyway. long? no i you know yeah no we, we've been on westerns for a little while and uh part of the problem is when we miss a week it just kind of extends the thing even yeah. further you know but yeah no um just, just no vampires. No vampires. We can no. do anything. <laughs> We're like, all into vampires for a while. That's all. Yeah, good. like maybe in 2020 we can do we can do vampires. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So Daniel, tell people where they can find you. Uh, I am on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. I do a podcast about uh, really awful people, actual neo Nazis. Um, you can find that at I don't speak German. That's I don't speak German. Um, those are the ways to find me. Yeah, uh, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, or you can find our uh, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links. Go to the Facebook group. That's where you'll probably find out first what's coming up next on the podcast, because I post frequently there and let people know what's going on. And uh, so, yeah, that's where you'll see it. But uh, until then, we're done with Westerns. It was fun. and For now, uh, for now. Yeah, for now. And, we'll take a uh, week off and then do more westerns. That's a fuck that. We're gonna we're gonna be annihilate. We're gonna be ultimately doing to other genres what the western, what the men of the old west did to the Native Americans. We're just going to like slowly kill them with disease and bullets. It's just gonna be the yeah, the way it goes, yeah. podcasting bullets, podcasting yeah. diseases. Yeah, we're just gonna. There will be no other. There will be no other movies. We will put all the other genres onto reservations. Is ultimately. <laughs> Trying to do, I'd, I'd be I'd be for putting like musicals and romantic comedies on reservations. Yeah, sure. Oh, well, you know, most of them anyway. Yeah. Some of them, some of them are the good ones, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just leave that one there. We've already yeah, we'll stop too far. Yeah, I've, I've gone too far. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back when we're back. Goodbye. Cheers.
Let me tell you, buddy, there's a faster gun coming over yonder when tomorrow comes. Let me tell you, buddy, and it won't be long till you find yourself singing your last cowboy song. Yippee ki yay when the roundup ends. Yippee ki yay and the campfire dims. Yippee ki yay he shouts and he sings when a cowboy trades his spurs for wings. When they wrap my body. In the bending sheet And I take my six eyes Pull the boots from my feet Unsaddle my pony She'll be itching to roam I'll be halfway to heaven Under horsepower of my own Yippee-ki-yay When the roundup ends Yippee-ki-yay
You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.